I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This week on The Gray Area, writer Derek Thompson makes his case that everything has become a cult. Well, almost everything. Is Taylor Swift the closest thing we have to a mass cult today? I, 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 no, I think she's the closest thing we have to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. Find out if you're in a cult this week on The Gray Area, wherever you get your podcasts. When we began this podcast, something I said was that impeachment isn't just about Donald Trump. It also functions as a lens on the American political system. And indeed, it has. I think that impeachment has been itself a reckoning with what this system has become, what it will permit, and how people act within it. This week, as the U.S. Senate, as Republicans in the U.S. Senate, to be very clear, decided not to go forward with witnesses and route to acquitting Donald Trump, what they did was it convicted the American political system. That is, I think, the single simplest summation of impeachment. Donald Trump is going to get off, but at the cost of recognizing what has happened to American politics and how weak we are now against presidential corruption, how much we've diverged from constitutionally, how this entire structure is meant to work. Let me begin where the Senate impeachment trial effectively ended, with Senator Lamar Alexander voting against witnesses. Lamar Alexander is a Tennessee Republican who's retiring this year. I can tell you that if you talk to Democratic senators and you ask them off the record, who are the Republicans you like working with? The answer you are likeliest to get now that John McCain is no longer in the Senate is Lamar Alexander. He's a Tennessee Republican. He's been at times a, a real moderate. He's good at working across the aisle. He's done a lot of work with Patty Murray on the Democratic side. He's a member of the Republican Old Guard, one of these elected officials who remembers the Senate and American politics before it was deformed and warped by this level of party polarization. He yearns often openly for the way things used to be. Alexander's retiring this year, and it was a combination of his institutional memory and reputation for courtly, genteel behavior and the freedom that people believed he was going to have because he was retiring that made him such a closely watched vote. That is itself an unsettling fact, isn't it? The retirement is needed to even imagine the independence necessary for a typical Republican to break with party. We saw this with Corker and with Flake. We have almost stopped imagining that a Republican might act with independence if they are not leaving Congress and elected life altogether. But there's a fractal structure to the dysfunction of this moment. Because remember, we're not even discussing here, not yet, a vote to convict Donald Trump. We're discussing a vote just to hear what John Bolton, a firsthand witness to the events under consideration, saw. That's it. John Bolton, a far more loyal Republican and more committed conservative than Donald Trump is or ever has been, viewed from another saner and I would say more principled angle, to vote to hear Bolton's testimony shouldn't have been understood as a break with party. It should have been understood as loyalty to party. Bolton has proven himself to his fellow Republicans through years and years of service. But we're seeing here what it truly means in the modern era to be a Republican. In 1923, Senator William Borah, an Idaho Republican, he complained that party affiliation, it didn't stand for much anymore. Any man, he said, who can carry a Republican primary, they're a Republican. He might believe in free trade, in unconditional membership in the League of Nations, in states' rights, and in every policy that the Democratic Party ever advocated. Yet if he carried his Republican primary, he would be 
a Republican. Today, we're seeing what it means to be a Republican again, and that is simply this. It means you support Donald Trump. It means you support him, in some cases, blindly, knowing that you don't know what it is you're defending, knowing that you don't want to fully know and you definitely don't want the public to fully know what it is that you are defending. This truth stretches way back into the primary and the general election. It's not only Democrats who should have wanted to know what was in Trump's tax returns. It is even more directly Republicans who should want to be certain that the leader of their party is not somehow compromised by his financial ties. At times, impeachment has felt to me like an experiment in which we keep layering on more absurd conditions to see what will the Republican Party accept? Does it even have a breaking point? What if Trump releases a call record in which he says Joe Biden's name repeatedly directly to Ukraine's president, even asks for a favor around Joe Biden? Okay, not enough. What if then we also have him go out and in front of television cameras say that he wants Ukraine and China to investigate Joe Biden on TV? Uh, That doesn't do it? Okay, well, what if we have Republican appointees, Donald Trump's own staffers, people he appointed, testify that he did it to the House? Still not good enough. You're going to call that hearsay. You're going to say that maybe Donald Trump is just worried about corruption, despite the fact that nobody can come up with any source of corruption or scandal in Ukraine that he was worried about that did not involve Democrats, that he wanted the Ukrainian president to investigate. You still think it's not. okay? how about this? How about we get John Bolton, hero of the American right, scourge of liberals, one of the most hated Republican policymakers on the left, to say that he will personally testify under oath that he himself, firsthand knowledge, heard Trump say the aid was contingent on Ukraine going after the Bidens. And he heard him say it even before any of the current testimony says Donald Trump was making this argument or demanding this deal. What if John Bolton will say that? John Bolton, I mean, surely him, right? And still, nothing. Not only nothing, like anti-something. Don't even want to hear it. Not even will hear it and ignore it. Don't want to hear it. There are moments in this whole process where I feel like I can't communicate how crazy what we're seeing actually is, where I can't quite convey that we are out of the realm of abnormal partisan conflict and into something where the level of motivated reasoning and the level of just-so justification has stretched beyond what can be acceptable in politics, what can be explained away. And it's actually the point now that we're in banana republic territory, but this is one of them, to not even want to know. And it is worth parsing Senator Alexander's reasoning here, his reasoning for voting against witnesses, not even voting against conviction, just voting against witnesses closely, because Alexander is supposed to be one of the Republicans who remembers how it is supposed to work. He's thought to be retiring in part because he doesn't like how it works now. So in a long series of tweets, he laid out his own thoughts, and it rested on two main arguments. First, Alexander says, quote, there is no need for more evidence to prove something that has already been proven, and it does not meet the U.S. Constitution's high bar for an impeachable offense. In other words, we don't need to know what Bolton knows, because we already know enough. And what we know, what we know is that Trump is guilty, but that what he's guilty of is not impeachable. The problem with this argument is obvious. This is an argument maybe for voting against conviction, not for voting against witnesses. We do not truly know what Bolton knows until we hear from him. So why not hear from him? What does Senator Lamar Alexander have next week that he's so busy with that he can't hear from John Bolton? 
But this tees up Alexander's deeper argument, his realer argument. And it's not just him, by the way. Marco Rubio is making this argument. A lot of the Republicans who want to be seen as still reasonable, not quite excusing everything Donald Trump did, but of course not holding him in any way accountable. They're making this argument. Alexander says, quote, the framers believed that there should never, ever be a partisan impeachment. That is why the Constitution requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate for conviction. Yet not one House Republican voted for these articles. I want to say this as clearly as I can. This is not an argument against impeaching Donald Trump or against calling witnesses. This is an argument that nullifies the legitimacy of the impeachment power itself, so long as the president's party can maintain its own internal discipline. The founders didn't believe there would be a partisan impeachment because they didn't believe America would have political parties at all. They didn't want them. But the founders weren't completely naive. They understood that American society would see factions and that those factions would engage in politics. In Federal 65, Alexander Hamilton writes that impeachment, quote, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and it will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. In joining his Republican colleagues to vote against witnesses, to say nothing of voting against conviction, how is it even possible to avoid the conclusion that Alexander is regulating the process through the comparative strength of parties rather than the real demonstration of innocence or guilt? His argument sets up a closed loop of partisan tautology. No Republican can or should vote for impeachment because no Republican is voting for impeachment. Impeachment cannot happen if it is partisan and divisive. And then, because Republicans can always make impeachment partisan and divisive, impeachment can never happen. Bipartisanship isn't a condition external to Alexander's decisions. It is a condition that will be decided by Alexander's decisions. He is making impeachment more partisan on the grounds that others made it partisan before him. Alexander goes on to say that, quote, if this shallow, hurried, and wholly partisan impeachment were to succeed, it would rip the country apart, pouring gasoline on the fire of cultural divisions that already exist. As a kicker to his argument, it is darkly perfect. Alexander is voting for a shallower, more hurried, more partisan impeachment trial, partly on the grounds the process has been, for his taste, too shallow, too hurried, and too partisan. Partisanship is a hell of a drug, man. It has been evident from the moment impeachment began that it would not, that it could not result in Trump's conviction because Mitch McConnell made that clear from the outset. Listen to him. Everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this uh, to the extent that we can. In a sense, Donald Trump was never truly on trial here. Not in the sense of a true trial where the objective is to understand the truth and, if needed, punish the guilty. America's political system, however, has been on trial, and the truth was revealed. It's worth remembering that Richard Nixon wasn't impeached, not over Watergate, not over anything. He resigned before the first impeachment vote was taken. And the reason he resigned is that a delegation of Republican members of Congress, two Republican senators, Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott, along with John Rhodes, the leader the leader of the House Republicans, they went to Nixon and they told him to resign. Buried in that story is a fundamental truth of our political system. There is nothing automatic 
in our system of constitutional accountability. Nixon's misdeeds, they did not automatically trigger impeachment, and it's not even the technical impeachment process that removed him from office. Our system is driven by what political parties choose to do. So let me ask a question. Does anyone, anyone at all, honestly and truly believe that if Watergate happened today with this Republican Senate, that Nixon would have been forced to resign? Even Fox News doesn't think so. You know, if it wasn't your show, Sean, they would destroy him absolutely. You're the difference between uh, Donald J. Trump and Richard Nixon. That our system worked to stop Nixon is part of our national mythology. It is part of the story of American politics as successfully self-correcting. But if that story is no longer true, then what does that mean for American politics? If you look at measures of party polarization in Congress, the Nixon impeachment comes at a historic low point in party polarization. American politics was not split between two parties that were internally united, but divided against each other. It was split at that time between two parties that were internally divided, and so they were able to work with each other. In my book, Why We're Polarized, I tell the story of how that changed. I hope you read the book. But for our purposes here, the point is that it did change, and we are now at a historic high point in party polarization, and that this has deformed our political system in more profound ways than is normally appreciated. It has made our constitutional structure inoperative. It has taken us away in following the letter of our political system from the spirit of what the founders wanted. The framers constructed a political system atop the belief that our most important political identities would be rooted in a sense of place, not in a party. James Madison in Federalist 46, he wrote, many considerations seem to place it beyond doubt that the first and most natural attachment of the people will be to the governments of their respective states. And so the American political system is built on geography, not on democracy. In the House, districts get represented. In the Senate, states are represented. In the White House, elections are decided by states as represented in the Electoral College. At no point is it just the people voting and being counted. We built a political system to balance not parties, not even people to balance the conflicts that would naturally arise between states of different sizes and then between branches with different kinds of democratic legitimacy. But that system has no answer for balancing political parties that now cooperate across places and across branches. Impeachment is a mechanism built atop the belief that Congress would be offended as an institution, that it would act as an institution if the president were abusing power to amass power. It is no answer for a president abusing power in a way that amasses power not just for himself, but for his congressional allies. It is no answer for a political system in which a congressional majority recognizes it may lose power, even lose the majority, if they hold a president of their own party accountable. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with polarized political parties. All that it means is the parties disagree sharply and they disagree clearly. And that's arguably what we want parties to do. The problem is in a political system like ours, where polarized parties break the basic functioning of government, where bills can't pass without bipartisan consensus, where presidents cannot be held accountable unless both parties see accountability as in their interest. That is when polarization becomes a threat to the system. The framers did their job in their time. They designed a system of government that worked to call the country with all of our flaws and all of our potential for greatness into being. But they did not design a system of government that is working in our time. They did not design a system of government robust to polarize political parties because they didn't believe we were going to have political parties. But we do. We know we do. We know more than they knew. 
And it is our job in our time to make our constitutional structure work amidst polarized political parties or to modify it until it does. Because make no mistake, Donald Trump is not the last threat our system will face. And he's not the worst threat our system will face. He himself is clumsy and distractible. His moral compass is sufficiently broken that he cannot tell the difference between corruption and competition. And so he blurts out his schemes, believing them perfect. And yet the centrifugal pull he exerts on his party, let his lawyer argue in the well of the U.S. Senate that so long as President Trump believes his personal power and glory are in America's interest, nothing he does can truly be impeachable. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. That moment should have been a wake-up call to Senate Republicans to hear the president's hand-picked lawyer make a case for functional despotism, a case that it is clear the president himself believes and operates off of. It should have shocked them into realizing what it was they were permitting what it was they were enabling. The fact that it did not shock them does not mean it cannot shock us or that it should not shock us. The Senate is not the only body empowered to judge Trump this year. He will face the public too. But the core lesson of this impeachment is that our constitutional decay, it goes far deeper than Donald Trump and it will not end with his presidency. In a sharp essay, Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion writes of the divide in the Democratic primary between the moderates who want to restore Obama-era governance and the leftists who want a true transformation. He writes, like so many of the binaries in politics, the restoration-transformation optic captures something important, but is also a false choice because restoring the norms that Trump threatens requires transformation. You can't just go back. And he's right, but it applies to more than just the ideological fight in the Democratic Party. It applies to the political system itself. There is no going backwards to the way the system used to work. There is no removing a few bad apples and rediscovering balance. To restore our constitutional structure, to restore the structure we were given, requires a transformation of how the political system works in the era we actually live. For Donald Trump, acquittal is certain. And for the American political system, the trial is ending. But sentencing is still to come. This has been Impeachment Explained. Barring something extraordinary, it is the last episode, at least for now, at least barring something that requires us to revive it. Um, I'm appreciative to y'all for listening. I'm appreciative to y'all for being here. I will continue exploring these issues and many others on my other podcast, my interview podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. If you don't already subscribe to that, I hope that you do. Why We're Polarized, my book, which turns out to be a hell of a companion to impeachment, is out now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Um, I want to thank everybody who worked on the show, um, particularly my researcher, Roger Karma, producer and editor Jeff Geld. Our theme music is by John Natchez. Our EP is Liz Nelson. Special thanks to Andrew Prokop and Matt Iglesias and the many other Vox reporters who guided us through so many crazy weeks here. And thank you to all of you who tuned in week after week. Impeachment Explained has been a production of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 